Hey, uh, before we really, you know, get into it this morning, um, can't even start saying it before I get emotional. Um, this week, this week marks eight years of of being pastor here at Cedarview. I don't want you to clap, but that actually helps me be a little less emotional. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the Lord has been so good, and I can't put into words the love that I have for you folks. And I've told you before, I said it when I first came, I said, I'm asking the Lord to give me at least 10 years of ministry here at Cedarview. It doesn't mean I'm trying to leave in two years. I said, give me at least 10 years. And also said, Lord, if you would let me just stay here until the end of my ministry, then let me do it. But sincerely... Uh, I have loved all of the all of the moments of pastoring you people and all of the difficult times and all of the errors that I have made uh, the things said that shouldn't be said or the things that should be said and were never said or said the wrong way or whatever Uh, and your patience and your grace toward me it has been it has been wonderful and I love you um, and I guess I can speak for Kyle as well for seven and a half years ish yeah I saw Adam stand up I was like oh no okay Well, all of that pales in comparison to what we get to look into in the Word of God today. And so, we're going to do our best. I'm going to keep it simple, I hope, today. Um, I want to remind you that we're walking through the book of Acts under this, this big heading, Save to be Sent. And so, we're getting into some of the nitty-gritty of the New Testament church and being on mission and This all ought to be a continuous reminder of us that we've been sent by the Lord Jesus. Like, we wear the shirt, right? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We have this responsibility to carry the gospel forward, and we're not doing it without a pattern. We see the pattern in the the book of Acts, how the church operates, and the sending of missionaries, and the, the... 
the diligence in the face of a culture that is not receptive to the gospel, how we may proceed and be faithful to do the work that God has called us to do. Now we're in chapter 4 in Acts, beginning chapter 4 today. And I want to remind you that we're still sort of in the same uh, scene that we were in in chapter 3. Chapter 3 began with a lame beggar by the beautiful gate. Uh, Peter and John entering in as he begged. They restored his body. And then that restoration became sort of a, a platform on which the gospel could be shared. This crowd of people are like, what are these guys doing? How did they do that? We need more of what they got. And then Peter was like, hey, we don't have the power, but we can tell you about the one who will save you. And so they automatically, as we covered last week, they make that connection directly from the lame beggar being restored to God intends to save your soul. So we move forward in that gospel opportunity and we encounter some of the consequences that come as a response to, <laughs> this one is uh, loving it today, okay? Uh, let it be an encouragement to you, folks. We see these consequences beginning to take place in Acts chapter 4. So let's read there. I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. We're going to read the whole thing, the whole passage for today together. All right, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, his, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray once more. Father, we do need your help to understand your word, to see Jesus clearly, to apply your word in our lives as we are sent on mission. Help us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the title for today is The Gospel Works. The Gospel Works. And that's to be read as a statement. The Gospel Works. We're beginning to see, as I mentioned, the way of life for believers, and we see the boldness of Peter and John, and it lays a foundation for boldness among all the believers as you continue in Acts chapter 4 and into chapter 5. Now, maybe there's a way we can illustrate this. You guys know I like to watch sports, and every now and again, when, when things are coming to a critical point, right now you got NBA playoffs, and every now and again you'll hear players that haven't done so hot recently, and nobody's really expecting anything out of them. And then they come to the game, and then, you know, they'll just have a stellar game. And a lot of times, the commentators would be like, they were able to do that because there was, there was no pressure on them. There was nothing to lose. There was nothing to lose. And this ought to be the, the missionary mindset of every believer. There is nothing to lose. You say, well, Matt, I've got a job. I could lose my job. Lose it. Is Christ better than your job? You say, say Matt, like my family, they, they think I'm a lunatic for all this like Christian stuff that I do, the way that I, I give my money and my time and the way that I spend my life with believers and talk about Jesus and read his word. They think I'm a lunatic. What did Jesus say? Unless... You hate your mother and father. You're not going to be my disciple. He who has ears, okay. So we see, we begin to see like if you're a believer and you've been charged with taking the gospel to the world, then you have to have that mindset. I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. And as soon as you walk out of here, you're going to start doing the things, thinking the things, and, and working toward the things that will try to convince you that you have something to lose, and maybe Jesus is not quite worth it. We look into this passage, and we see that there is nothing to lose. So let me give you this theme today. 
unhindered mission characterizes people who've been with Jesus. And I hope you note that that who've been with Jesus is from the text. Unhindered mission characterizes people who've been with Jesus. If you truly know and worship and love and adore and follow Jesus, then you know that there is nothing to lose and you know that because of that relationship, you know that the gospel needs to be preached and the gospel works. The gospel works. There's a lot that can be said about what we tend to put our uh, hope in, our eggs in the basket, so to speak, when it comes to the mission of the church. And so, like, let's, let's put proper focus on the gospel and not put so much focus on our strategies and ideas, methods. Well, if we just did this, then we'd reach... No, the gospel works. The gospel works. So as we go from here, my hope is that you'll come away thinking, let the gospel do its work. Let the gospel do its work because it works. So I want to give you from this text, on this theme, three reminders for mission. Now, I want to give them to you as reminders because really we know these things. Believers, we know these things. We've talked about these things. But they're being worked out for the very first time in the life of the local church and their proclamation. Their proclamation of the gospel. Three reminders. You know, a a brother of mine uh, has said, I know he's quoting somebody else, but he... He said, preaching is really just reminding. And so every week, I'm just reminding you of what Jesus did, reminding you of what he commanded us to do. So much of preaching is just reminding. So that's what I want to do today. I want to remind you of a few things. First off, first reminder, confidently speak the message that hardens some and saves others. Confidently speak the message that hardens some and saves others. Right there in verses 1 through 4, you get a picture of both of those groups of people. Now, to give you the context, so they're, they're appearing before the council that essentially uh, was, was the council of which, you know, Jesus became victim. Um, all these people who are super important in the, in the, the, execution of of the Jewish law under this this Roman government they are they're the ones that are that are sort of trying uh, Peter and John on this occasion and we're going to see just in a moment their their bent their their hobby horse what they're working toward but for now suffice it to say this is a principle in danger of, of principalizing scripture today, I suppose. Um, we know what the Bible says about how the message of the gospel, it turns away some, but others believe it. Others receive it. Paul writes these things in 1 Corinthians one eighteen. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You've heard me quote this verse numerous times. So the gospel is foolishness to the people who are perishing. 
Isn't it interesting how the same message can produce both results? Sometimes we see that in the lives of people, right? We have a polarizing figure. I don't think I'm like that. Somebody may correct me, but, you know, sometimes we encounter the polarizing figure where it's like, you either love that person and you want to be around them, you want to hear from them, or it's like, oh, I'm totally turned away. Polarizing. There is nothing more polarizing than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no more polarizing figure in the history of mankind than Jesus Christ himself. Because when people hear his message, those that are the natural men, 1 Corinthians would tell us, those ones that don't have the spiritual discernment that comes from God, those who are natural, they cannot understand the wisdom of God. And so the hearing of the gospel to them is disgusting. Why would I want anything to do with that? This is the natural man's response. But in the preaching of the gospel, the word says, those who are being saved. I love that terminology, being saved. It's almost like we get to peer into what is happening when the Holy Spirit is working upon those individuals that are hearing the gospel and coming to faith. It's like the things that you don't see with your eyes, the word helps us to know what's going on there. It's because to the natural man, the gospel is foolishness. I want nothing to do with this, but to, the, to those who are being saved, to those whom the, the spirit is enlightening and, and, and peeling back the scales and, and unveiling them to the truth, 2 Corinthians 3, like Moses unveiled Those who are viewing Jesus, the Savior, for the very first time by faith. The gospel is the greatest news ever. We must confidently speak the message, this message of the gospel that hardens some and saves others. I'll remind you of that thought, like we have nothing to lose. I know we all, we all get caught up in the idea like I'm the one that's going to say the right words and do the right things that's going to save these folks. That's not what's happening. You're an instrument, a vessel that God is using to do the work that he can do. You never saved anybody. Confidently speak the message that hardens some and saves the others. Notice here there's two groups of people. We're going to say it this way. There's a first group of people, and there are people with another agenda. There are people with another agenda. Let's describe these guys here. They're noted as Sadducees. Sadducees are political and religious leaders working alongside, in many ways, the Roman government. They want peace. And if you're aware of what the Sadducees believe, you know their number one, the number one doctrine that they deny is the doctrine of the resurrection. They do not believe in the resurrection. And now I'm not talking specifically about the resurrection of Jesus. They're fighting that as much as they can again. They're fighting that. But it is detrimental to their cause and their power if anybody starts embracing the concept of a coming resurrection, a future 
resurrection. So you notice there in the words here, they deny the resurrection, but see how Luke records it. He says, he says they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're not proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, though they are. They're more concerned with what is the outcome of that. If Jesus is raised and they can, they can prove this, as so many people have, they've seen him, 500 Now their lives are devoted to him. They can do nothing about it. But if that word spreads and then people start believing in the resurrection, that may mean something politically. It could cause an uprising. It could cause their power to diminish. They don't want this doctrine affecting these people. They don't want anything that might sound like a revolt against the government because if the resurrection is coming, then Israel will be restored and all these things that we can't have because we have a great place in this system, these Sadducees are thinking. They have a competing agenda. And when you're devoted to a competing agenda, another agenda other than God's agenda, You want nothing to do with the foolishness of the gospel. It becomes a nuisance. It becomes, as it did for them, annoying. I fear that some, even some connected to local churches, have come to the place where the gospel has become annoying. Because I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear about all the things that tell me that my life is not headed in the right direction. I've got my agenda. I've got my goals. I've got my career. I've got my beliefs. Don't impress those things upon me. I'm content with where I'm at. People with another agenda will refuse, will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another group of people, maybe you didn't quickly notice it here. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. These are people who surrender to Christ's agenda. Brings the total number, as he says, of men to 5,000. People who surrender to Christ's agenda. Here's what happened, believer, for you. If you came to faith in Jesus Christ... Believer, you had to reckon with the fact that all of your agenda now gets replaced by what Christ wants. That if you truly do follow Jesus as Lord, as we talked about last week, you follow him as Lord, then you're now doing the things that he wants you to do. And so we're not just sort of attaching the Jesus uh, Christian agenda like an appendix to all the other things that we have planned and set out. Some of you have your life planned out all the way. You young people, I know there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure on you to figure out what's next and which way to go and what career and what education. And you know what? You cannot live your life as though Jesus is just an attachment to that. Some of you need to stop right in your tracks right now and say, my life is not aligned with Christ's agenda, and it must be. Otherwise, you're always going to have a Jesus that tells you how great you are doing.
It's not, not the Jesus of Scripture. Now, I know it sounds like Luke here in verse 4 is just a good old Southern Baptist telling how many, folk, how many uh, folks got saved, right? Hey, we're up to 5,000 now. <laughs> how about that? Now, this is not a, this is not a boast. It's not a boast in numbers. But do you understand that even at this point, they are keeping track of who they're responsible for? And so these guys, and you get into later in Acts, you start to see like people are falling through the cracks. We need deacon ministry. You see how they are diligent to know who is their responsibility. And so there's no doubt that Luke here is reflecting upon what was the early church role, if we can say it that way. But we must confidently speak this message that hardens some and saves others. Second reminder, man, how do I always turn a short sermon into a long one? I have half as many notes as I usually do, just so you know. Secondly, Boldly testify to the work that Jesus did. You see this in verses 5 through 12. Boldly testify to the work that Jesus did. Now the next day, as we read, they receive a proper counsel. It's the counsel that Jesus did not receive. You remember he was arrested at night and he was taken in the middle of the night to be sort of tried by their, uh, as as. One recently referred to it as the kangaroo court. They receive proper counsel. And these key leaders are the ones questioning them. And you note right here, as Linsky does for us, they're standing in the very same spot that Jesus would have stood. Think about what kind of impact this would have on them. Think about all the the thoughts that would be flooding their mind as they stood before this council. They know that they executed him. What's going to happen to us? But they ask this question. By what power, here's the key, or by what name did you do this? They're not concerned with what they did. Do you you see that? This man has been healed. Uh, We don't want to talk about that. People are going to believe it when we talk about that. We must not emphasize that. We want to know who is responsible for this. And their question really, as Linsky says, is like throwing a noose around the apostles' necks. It's to say, if they speak of Jesus, then we can, we can try them as blasphemers just like he was. But then you see the response And you see how we may use Peter's response here as encouragement to boldly testify to the work that Jesus did. Note here, first off, that you are a witness. Jesus made you a witness. We know from the word, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I hope you realize that just as Jesus says, it's not that you are somehow generating some light And they hate you and they hate your light. They love darkness. The world loves darkness. But the light that they hate is coming from Jesus. It's just reflecting off of you. 
When you're persecuted, I know it's tough for me to say this. It's tough to hear this. But when you're persecuted and the day is going to come, don't take it personal. It's not you. It's Jesus. They see that reflective light, that source of Jesus, and they hate the source, and they're going to try to eliminate any reflection of that light. So Jesus made you a witness. I'll tell you from verses 8 through 10, stand on his work. Peter uses language that emphasizes the good deed just done. Hey, guys, we just healed a guy, and you want to try us? These guys are trying to to hush up the resurrection. The Sadducees, they don't want to talk about the resurrection. And yet here, they're facing it again, as Peter testifies, with even more evidence. So not only has the word gotten around that this Jesus rose from the dead, and they haven't been able to deal with that issue, now we got these guys who are performing miracles, and they're saying that Jesus did it. Commentator says, no dead Jesus could work a miracle such as this. He healed when he was alive. Now he had healed after this Sanhedrin had crucified him. You see how big of a threat this becomes. And they were prepared for it. Peter stands on his work. We must stand on his work and see how the lame beggar is the example here. Look at this guy. He's healed. This is their testimony. Do you see how just as you are the lame beggar in that story, you're now the example of what God can do? He made you a witness. You are the example. You are the trophy of grace, Christian. And so to the one who's unsure about following Jesus today, let this lame beggar show you what God can do in you. But today's got to be that day when you recognize I am that lame beggar. I can't worship God. I can't do anything on my own. I need him. I need Jesus. Stand on his work. Witness. We could also say from verse 11, witness to the hearers. Verse 11 shows us how Peter lays out the truth. Let me read it again. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Maybe you don't realize it, but Jesus actually referenced these words in Psalm 118 from Matthew 21. He prophesied of these religious leaders from Psalm 118. He said, the cornerstone is the one that you rejected. He was a stone that you rejected. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior. And so Peter right here is recalling to them the occasion when they heard from the mouth of Jesus that this is going to be you if you reject me. Now Peter is showing how it's fulfilled. Jesus said the kingdom will be taken from you And it will be given to those who produce its fruit. And now Peter is showing how they have no authority in God's kingdom. And that kingdom now belongs to all those who believe. And as we see the outworking of Acts, it's not just just Jews. It's not just Jerusalem. 
but it's Gentiles, it's the nations, it's the ends of the earth. All who believe. But you see how Peter does this. He proclaims a truth, and it's hard to know how prepared Peter was for the moment. I mean, I'm the kind of guy, like, like I got to think about what I'm saying before I say it. That's why I get up here and I have notes in front of me. <laughs> uh, if you ever hear people talk about preaching just like off the top, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. And I hold them in suspicion, okay? <laughs> uh, I don't know how much Peter is trying to prepare here. We don't know if he planned what he would say, but he hits them right where it hurts. Like this prophecy from Psalm 118, you're the person that he's talking about. That's what he's saying to these guys, boldly. It's not like, oh, you know, playing in the dirt, like, well, this is, he's a cornerstone, and you rejected it? No. The stone you rejected is the cornerstone. He's the Messiah, the Savior, and there's a new temple being built up on him. And you're not a part of that. So we don't know if Peter planned exactly what he would say. But I know in that situation, I would not be able to think. I get arrested. Just know that whatever comes out of my mouth has got to be from the Holy Spirit if it makes any sense. It's one thing to plan a sermon. It's another thing to stand before men who can end your life and speak faithfully of Jesus. So stand on his work. Witness to hearers. Witness to the hearers. You may be wondering, like, who are my hearers? Let's talk about your life. Where do you go? What do you do? What are the rhythms? What are the routines? You have hearers. Stand on his work. Witness to your hearers. And then do it. Verse 8, the beginning of that section. Do it in the power of the Spirit. This is how we know. This is how we know. Luke doesn't even record this in Pentecost saying that he was dependent on the power of the Spirit. It's kind of a given because the Spirit had just come. But now he says explicitly, Peter speaking in the power of the Spirit. So we could talk about context and contextualizing the gospel and thinking about who you're preaching to. I don't think any of that was going through Peter's mind. There's also a time when all you can do is trust what the Spirit is giving you. And Jesus promised this. If we're standing on the promises, then hear what he says. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak. I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. I have nothing to lose. You thought you needed to get defensive for Jesus' sake, like he needs your defense? I got nothing to lose. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. There's freedom in that, folks. That's liberating for the Christian. Do so in the power of the Spirit. 
Jesus made you a witness. Stand on his work, witness to your hearers, do it in the power of the Spirit. But we also note here, he made you a witness, but he is the only Savior. That's the point. He is the only Savior. Look at verse 12. We know this verse very well. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only Savior. Literally, you could read this, not a single other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men. Literally, not a single other name brings salvation. There is no second Savior. There is no substitute Savior. There is no alternate Savior. It's not the name of pleasure that will save you, the name of success that will save you, the name of wealth, the name of health, the name of purpose, the name of good works, or the name of reputation, or politics, or sexual liberation, which is actually slavery. It's not the name of control. And certainly not the name of Buddha or Muhammad or the Mormon Jesus or the Watchtower Jesus. And you know, there is always a figurehead. There is always a spokesperson. There is always a savior for every false gospel. (laughs) There's not a single other name who is even in any way like or comparable to Jesus that will bring salvation because it is a different name. Jesus alone bears the name of God because he is the eternal son, God in human flesh. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. You have no idea. In just a lot of different ways, I'm tired. We read in this passage previous that salvation, applied here, comes by faith in his name. And we're going to finish very quickly on this third point. Third encouragement to you. Humbly persist in making Jesus known. Humbly persist in making Jesus known. You notice there as we read, they would not be silenced in their persistence. But also notice that God silenced the opposition in his providence. Verses 13 and 14. They literally had nothing to say in opposition. One commentator said, it's checkmate. It's over. They got nothing to say in verses 15 to 18. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, when they were trying to apply the pressure to these believers in Jesus, now all of a sudden, they're the ones under the pressure. It's reversed. What do we do? They confer. They have a little conference among themselves. Y'all leave for a minute. We got to figure out what we're doing here. What do we do? And the only thing that they could come up with was to try to limit the spread of the good news, this good news. And you know, in verse 17, what they say, notice this, 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They don't even want to say it. I was reading this, and and I I don't know what this means, but I was just, I was struck by the fact that nowadays, it's not so much that not spoken of did I have to go to did I lose battery I get disconnected I'm okay in our day it's not the name of Jesus that's people are scared of saying but they say his name as blasphemy They wouldn't even mention his name. And I wonder how much of this, as they know what the name of Jesus means, I wonder how much of this is tied to the the fact that Jesus is the one who saves. So to say his name is almost to confess like he is the Savior or he is the Lord. They can't figure out what to do here. And then verses 19 and 20, Peter says, and this is my point for this point. Peter says, essentially, hey guys, if this is the case, then we have a problem. I'm saying it in this way because Peter is not combative. Peter is just being faithful. Like we have a problem then. You say don't speak the name, don't share the gospel But God says otherwise. And you can judge, but we're ready. We're ready for whatever consequences may come because we have nothing to lose. We will, this is essentially what he says, we will continue to speak the name of Jesus. Folks, I know, I know saying something like that right now in our culture is easy. And it doesn't mean maybe that much to you right now. But it's probably going to come in the, the, the days of, of my life or maybe the lives of my children when to speak the name of Jesus is a death sentence. And we're going to remember these days when it was so easy to say, We will continue to speak the name of Jesus. God help us in those days. Why must we do this? Romans 1 tells us that the name of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, which is wrapped up in him, this is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So we must persist because in speaking the saving name of Jesus, God saves people. I want to note one more thing and and we're done. You look back at verse 13. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished I love verses like this because 
as somebody who has been educated, I was telling somebody just a couple of days ago or yesterday, since I started kindergarten, I've only not been in school for five years of my life. I'm 39. I've received more education than so many people have even had the opportunity to think about. And I love verses like this because it reminds me, it reminds me like, Matt, no matter how much education you got, that can never be a replacement for trusting Jesus. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. We recognize, I love the diversity among us. I love the fact that I know people and worship with people and learn from people that some of them didn't finish high school. I love that. And I love it when the word reminds us of these things and they're like in their education, all these guys, they're uneducated. They don't know anything. They dropped out of rabbinical school. But you know, some folks get too smart for their own good. Some get too educated to do any good. I suppose as some of y'all might say they're too big for their own britches. But you know what they notice here? They're uneducated. They're common men, and they were astonished, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, just face value, this is, yeah, these are the guys who are associated with Jesus. It's that simple. But I believe that there is some spiritual application that can be made here. And so we can ask the question. It'll be up on the screen here momentarily. Question for you, for us. Is it clear that we have been with Jesus? Is it clear that you know him? Is it clear that you commune with him? Is it clear that you worship him? Is it clear that you follow him? That he is Lord? That his agenda is your agenda? Let me do what he has commanded us to do. Is it clear that we've been with Jesus? I hope one day when that persecution does come, I hope that it's recorded somewhere. That somebody looking upon us said, it's clear they've been with Jesus. May we speak the name of Jesus boldly. May we speak the name of Jesus confidently. Leaving the results up to God, may we persist in making this name of Jesus known. Some of you need to hear today that, once again, You need to hear Acts 4.12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one else can save you. The preacher can't save you. Your mama can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Surrender to Jesus today. I'll be down here to receive you. If today... You're repenting and believing for salvation. I'll be down to receive you and pray with you. If you're just realizing like Jesus' agenda has not been my agenda and I need help with that, 
Let's pray together. Let's respond as the Holy Spirit leads. Father, we love you. Oh, we're so thankful 